The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight, wisdom. And uh, we're going to end last 20 minutes or so with small groups. Please stay for the small groups. Remember, you can pass. But part of what we're learning in the Buddhist Studies courses is how to show up in these small groups. And it's, it's kind of like showing up as a practitioner <laughs> and talking about, you know, the joys and sorrows of being a Buddhist practitioner, trying to use these teachings, operationalize these teachings in our own heart. And what do we learn and what gets in the way and how can we learn from each other and being around each other and listening to each other, how does that normalize the joys and sorrows that come with the practice. It really can help build faith and uh, resilience, being, you know, um, yeah, just finding ways to be in community around the practice. I'm sure you've heard, we often, people often say, you know, we're going against the stream. So the general force of our culture is in the direction of distraction and superficiality and ignorance, really. And ignorance in the sense of justifying greed, hate, and aversion, fear, these, you know, very dominant forces in our culture and in our minds. And our culture justifies these. And that's not the direction most of us are interested in going in, because when we observe those forces with awareness, we see these are the forces that support suffering, not freedom. So why would we consciously, I mean, we're gonna, because of the momentum of the habit, we're gonna go in the direction of greed and aversion. But to consciously go in that direction, well, we call that ignorance. Because <laughs> it, it doesn't deliver what we think it will deliver. You know, like when we overeat. It seems like having another bowl is going to deliver something, but what does it actually deliver, just in that simple sense? Or staying up and watching one more episode of a, your favorite program. You know, what is that set of motion? Does it really, does the promise that it seems to offer come true? And, you know, we maybe have learned this in some places in life, and are still learning it in other corners of our life, where the promise just seems so compelling. You know, this will make you happy. But that's, that's the edge, you know, that's where we're learning. So um, for the small groups tonight, you know, the, I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago that the five spiritual faculties describe that territory between feeling inspired and the experience of insight, the deepening of insight, which is what is the cause for the inspiration. How do we get from some confidence to the exact experience that causes the confidence, the deepening? It's really, it's not just like we're deepening some philosophical understanding of the way it is. It's this very functional deepening, like knowing 
how to be, knowing how to be human, knowing how to be sensitive, knowing how to be in a messy world, an aging body, you know, all these things that we need to just function as a human being. And so what would be possibly useful, of course, anything that seems relevant is appropriate to bring up in the small group sharings, and of course it's always okay to pass. But have we seen, how have we seen suffering, the heart bound up, the heart burden, how have we experienced the cessation of that? That's not about the outward conditions changing. You know, like if I have a, a lot of pain in my knee and I hate it, I'm not really identified with the pain in my knee, and I stretch my leg out and the pain goes away, does that mean we're liberated? Well, in that very limited sense, I'm no longer, my mind is no longer afflicted by the pain in the knee. But the latent vulnerability remains, right? I'm still vulnerable to physical pain. I haven't learned anything that's going to help me when the next painful experience shows up. I just have removed the particular specific cause for this current pain. But we could probably, you know, we're probably guaranteed to have more, you know, different expressions of physical, emotional, mental pain. So wisdom is a release that uh, isn't dependent on conditions. It's a shift in understanding that changes our relationship to pleasure, pain, and neutrality. And uh, so where in your life have you experienced being bound up and with some presence, some ability to discern cause and effect, you saw the release of that, your heart being bound up, that was the result, the shift was in understanding, not the outer conditions. You know, like an example might be reflecting on a situation at work that it caused you a lot of pain. You know, you felt mistreated or felt not seen or not loved by some colleagues, and it was really painful. And part of the reason it was really painful is that we were really identified with the whole situation. They don't love me. I'm, maybe I'm not lovable or something like that. And being with that, showing up to that, emotional pain, let's call it, something shifted. How the mind was relating to the emotional pain that was such a burden shifted from this is I, me, or mine to this is just that being known, just that being known. And like a mini Dharma miracle, the whole sense of me being burdened by not being loved at work by these particular people changes. It evaporates, it fades, 
it doesn't feel like a personal burden. Uh, that's just one example, but there could be any number of examples. This is a little text from a pretty impressive book. It's been around for a long time, but still I think it's quite useful. It's called Wings to Awakening. It's written by a Western Buddhist monk. Some of you, a lot of you probably know Tanisaro Bhikkhu. He's the abbot of a monastery just outside of San Diego, Wat Metta. And uh, the Buddha has, uh, you'll be familiar with a lot of these maps, this Wings to Awakening. I think it's 35 when you add them up, you know, the five faculties and the four powers and the seven factors of awakening and the five hindrances. And the, but anyway, these are the wings to awakening. That It's just a way of organizing the Buddhist teachings. So he wrote this book and he has a lot of the discourses for each of the particular teachings. So for serious students of the Buddha and especially for the nerdy types, not everyone finds value in doing the deeper dive uh, with the reading and study. But some people, it's really um, a powerful support for your practice. And that's a good book to have on hand then. You can get a, a free copy of it. Uh, you can see me afterward, I'll let you know. Or just Google um, Wings to Awakening by Tani Saro Bhikkhu, and you'll find it. So let me just read this short section here. When the mind sees, without its normal bewilderment, the actual process by which stress is caused, it will naturally develop a sense of dispassion, dispassion for and non-attachment from the passion, so that it can view it, the passion, simply as a mental event with no meaning in terms of anything else. This opens the way to a state of non-fashioning where the cause of stress is allowed to cease. And I mentioned during the guided meditation, you know, a shorter version of the same point where he says, as a result of knowing but not holding, the mind experiences unbinding in the here and now. I like this because it seems doable, doesn't it? You know, it's simple. Knowing without holding. And, and we can like test, like, is that actually true? That something that Tadisaro Bhikkhu is calling the unbinding of our heart, the unraveling of the burden, the heaviness, the squeeze, the wormy anxiety, the unbinding of that happens. All we have to do is find that beautiful, delicate balance of intimacy, knowing, without holding. Another way you could say that is knowing without fixedness. Even the fixedness of me wanting, you know, to know without holding. And that's what he means in this other quote that I, I read, because it... It can seem a little strange, like what does that mean when he says this opens the way to a state of non-fashioning where this, the cause of stress is allowed to cease. 
So another way of understanding wisdom, which, you know, of course, is the fifth of the five spiritual faculties. So it's, it's this, it's being open to this, and this, you know, any moment will do. So being open, aware of this, Without this, what here in this particular articulation, Tani Saro is calling non-fashioning or non-conceiving. It's not even, yeah, it, it's not even about no thoughts. It's about the non-adherence to thought, the non-dependence on meaning. Right. So that's what we mean by the non-fashioning. It's like the intimacy, the, the stability of present moment awareness that allows for that clarity. And what's happened over a long period of time usually is the mind realizes that this is the only thing that actually helps. And all of my self-centered attempts to help myself don't really help my sort of spiritual situation. What really, really helps is to uh, build this momentum of present moment awareness so, so strongly that the heart is willing to drop the very deep habit of making up meaning, conceiving, like of me trying to get concentrated and adhering to the meaning that it creates. It's that stickiness to our conceptions and our meaning making, our fashioning. It's the stickiness to it that really gets in the way of wisdom and compassion doing its job. Because the letting go will really just happen. And that would be a neat thing to share in the small groups because you may not understand why it happened, but you might have sensed that a heart was really burdened and then it was a lot less burdened. I share this often because it's, it's one of the more obvious places in my life where this happens, you know, because my partner and I, Gwen Fricky, the other uh, founder of Common Ground and one of our important teachers here, Dharma teachers at the center, um, you know, having been married for uh, 30 years and lived together longer than that, um, we, we have our arguments and our disagreements and conflicts, and, uh, and when we're enmeshed in some problem like that, there can be initially, often will be, a sense that a very personal, I'm just talking from my own point of view now, a very personal sense that this is not okay. This really hurts, you know, very much a self-centered problem. That just feels so clear and obvious. And then hanging in there and, and the practice is naturally showing up, which is just, remember, just that profound faith in being open, just feeling what I'm feeling. And so initially that means feeling what it feels like to be, in that personal sense, a suffering being. That's the gateway. That's the surface of what's happening in that moment. 
And we have to be willing to, you know, we have these words, embrace that, feel that, know that, be with that, relax with it, because that's how, that's sort of the surface interpretation of what's going on. And then, you know, it's like we're there. <laughs> it feels like one of those intractable problems. And then all of a sudden it doesn't feel, but nothing's changed. The relationship is still broken or, you know, imperfect in the way that it's imperfect. It's not like all of a sudden we're angels or that we know the way forward even. All that's changed is the heart was really burden, really hurting, and then all of a sudden this marital situation is without, doesn't include my heart being burdened. And often it seems the same for when. And sometimes it seems that way for when, but not me. <laughs> right? So I'm not, you know, it's, it's not always exactly, we're not always exactly in sync around this stuff. But it's really that's a place. So like in the small group, that may be a situation that some of you could share. Like how you were with somebody and felt really personal, really difficult. And the, remember, the difficulty could be that this thing going on between us is so good and I don't want it to end. And we get really controlling or, you know, it becomes a problem. It, the strong desire for it not to end or to have more of it or whatever. And then that attachment can evaporate, the same thing. When the practice kicks back in and we recognize, oh, I've been building castles in the sky around this relationship. This relationship is gonna save me, you know, or this job is gonna save me, or this cabin is gonna save me, or this retreat, this teacher is gonna save me, or whatever you know, the Savior is in that particular moment. And then generally what will trigger Dharma practice coming back online is the experience of suffering. If we've been practicing well over time, then one of the ways you know you have some momentum in your practice as soon as the sense of me being a suffering being shows up in your life, then the practice should be close at hand. That's its cue for faith, because one articulation of faith in our practice is suffering is optional. Pain is not optional as a human being. It just comes with the territory of being human. But the resistance to pain, the fear of pain, the heaviness around pain, that all... The, that's what we mean, and that's why it's nice to use a different word. You know, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. I find that a very useful little teaching to keep at hand. So, what if, you know, so when there's a lot of pain and resistance to the pain, the not liking the pain, the wanting the moment to be different, then Often it may take us a couple attempts to control the situation and realizing that's not helping before our practice kicks back in. Okay, 
what's going on? What's the feeling here? Can I be with this? And this is where that valuing of relaxation, this really goes around, this is really that second factor, of, second faculty of persistence. We're persisting in what's helpful and we're abandoning what's not helpful. Okay, I don't know much, but I know enough not to contribute to the contraction I'm experiencing. And then once I get reasonably effective at not making the situation worse, I might have enough stability to sense of, you know, what ingredients right now, what qualities of heart right now might be helpful. Maybe a little bit forgiveness. Maybe a little bit of normalizing, oh yeah, this is how it is sometimes for us humans. So we're not condemning ourselves for once again being a suffering human being. Or maybe a sense of humor helps stabilize. And you can bring to mind some of the lists, like the seven factors. Like, am I interested in what's going on? Is there enough tranquility, enough relaxation? So we stabilize, you know, we do whatever we can, even if we have to, like the image the Buddha uses, of the cow herder bringing his 30 cows down a very narrow path between rice paddies with the farmers looking at him, wondering if he's going to let his cows smash the plants. And so the cow herders desperately, you know, with the stick, you know, and all the sounds and all the different tricks he has to keep the cows on the path. And it's like that when our mind is a little uh, in dangerous territory, you know, no, 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 don't do that, that's not helpful. We're very parental to our mind when that, when the mind needs a parent, needs a cow herder. And then the Buddha's image, the simile, is then when the cows are in a pasture and it's really okay for them to go wherever they want, then the cow herder can just sit under the shade tree just knowing that the cows are there, but doesn't have to be frantically keeping them on this path. And that's like the example of samadhi. When our mind has enough wholesome qualities with momentum, then the samadhi keeps itself going. The pleasure of that settledness keeps the settledness settled. And this is another thing you can describe in the small group. It's like those examples of when you had some momentum and you felt like your practice was not trying too hard to practice because you didn't, it was like counterproductive. The mind knew what it was doing. The samadhi, the stability of present moment awareness was sustaining itself. And so at that point, practice is basically appreciating, ah, and then noticing how effective wisdom and compassion can do its job. So when in that place of samadhi, that stability of present moment awareness, if a painful memory were to arise, or physical pain were to arise, or an exciting thought about what you could become, what you could do with your life were to arise, and all the off-ramps 
all the tendencies around whatever it was that arose come to be, right? You see how wisdom and compassion knows, oh, that's just that. You don't have to identify, you don't have to get caught, you don't have to take it personally. And there, you know, the, the thing about wisdom and compassion, they have a lot of skillful means. So how wisdom and compassion protects the heart, it will be characterized by its nimbleness, its creativity, its array of skillful means. You know, sometimes it might, you're, you'll notice in your mind, you know, somehow wisdom will pull out a little phrase, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. And it'll be just the right medicine, you know, and a, or other times, you know, it will be just a, a little flash of, you know, when you did this, when you got, you went down this road before, you got all entangled. Remember that? Right? So a little skillful warning, cause and effect. Here, let me just remind you of cause and effect here. What's in store if you do this? And it's not like we have to do that, all those skillful means, or play the role of wisdom and compassion. That's what's just so great to see. There was, uh, I was gonna read this during the guided sip, but maybe I'll read it now. This is from one of my teachers, Saido Tejaniya. Because we want to learn about the nature of the mind and objects, we don't try to calm the mind down or try to remove objects. We don't interfere or control, but observe, because we want to understand the mind and objects in their natural state as they are happening. This is right view, right? This is the view of wisdom, because with the factors, the faculties of faith and effort and awareness and the stability of awareness, then Wisdom, we're trusting that wisdom is nature, it's natural. When the supporting causes are there, then when something dicey arises, we're not trying to suppress it. We're appreciating how wisdom handles it because of compassion. That's what's so effective. And this is something you could talk about in the small groups. It's like, how have you seen out in your life or in a set, how have you seen wisdom show up to protect you? You know, whether it's in that form of uh, warning, like a skillful warning, danger, <laughs> danger. <laughs> Honey, be careful. Or some other, like, seeing the emptiness of it. Oh, it's just this being known. And that this being known is it. It doesn't refer back to something like to whom that's happening. It's just this being known. That's a, just a way of understanding that this moment of this image being seen in the mind or this emotion being felt in the heart doesn't refer back to somebody who's got a problem. It's just that experience being known. So we're seeing that it's empty of anything else but that experience being known. And when 
the mind has that quality of discernment, then that's a very powerful, skillful means. The mind has a lot of immunity. It doesn't worry about what might show up because it's just that being known, or it's just that being known. And then we're really that cow herder under the shade tree. We could probably take a nap because if any kind of dangerous thing were to arise, it's sort of like wisdom. Be so just to open your eye, just oh yeah, that's just that being known. Doesn't require like this great Dharma practitioner. It wasn't because part of like. Uh, the idea that, oh, i got to really be on my guard. I've got to be really vigilant. See, there's even some self-view there. Like, there really are demons that we have to be aware of. But when we're, when the mind is still under the influence of a strong self-view, then there really are demons. <laughs> but when the mind isn't, when, the, when a lot of wisdom is in the mind, then, then those tendency, those traps, those holes we'd fall through, they're not a problem because the mind isn't confused by them. And that the key is to, like, the reason we have to let wisdom be natural, be a natural process, is wisdom is, its very nature is to bring the right tool to the job in a way that we can't, as an egoic, we won't do that. <laughs> we have to get out of the way and let nature bring the skillful means that's appropriate to this moment. But you see, it's a real shift because a lot of what we're doing initially in practice is we're sort of scrambling in the toolbox for like, what tool might help me? You know, I'll try this move. I'll try this dharma move. I'll come back to my breath. You know, I'll do a little loving kindness practice. You know, and, and it's a little, we're always a little on our back foot, so to speak, you know, trying to maintain some stability, trying not to get thrown too much off balance or too identified or too caught up. And that may be exactly what we need to do when we're in that situation, but we're not always in that situation. So when there's more wisdom, more stability of awareness, then we want to start to check, like this is part of how faith will operate. Will wisdom, compassion and wisdom, naturally do its job? Can I trust it? You can try this in very ordinary situations, like you, have a di you need to have a difficult conversation with someone. And the work you do ahead of time is you reflect, is my intention to cause myself or this person harm? And you really get to that place, oh, I really, you know, the dominant intention that I feel is not to want to cause myself or this person any harm. I really want to be skillful. I really want to set in motion what's appropriate and healing and not a cause for harm. And I don't know how to do it exactly. I mean, I, I can generate ideas, but I don't really know how to be skillful, and I know that I don't know, but I have this amazing thing. 
I know how to, I know the causes for wisdom and compassion to show up. It is the stability, continuity, stability of present moment awareness. So I'll do that as best I can, and then I'll, in a sense, observe whatever wisdom, whatever wisdom and compassion can manifest, I'll observe it doing its job. And I know it sounds a little funny, but I encourage you to, for yourself, within your own mind at least, use this kind of language like, oh, it'll be interesting to see wisdom doing its job. Or then in hindsight, like where you handled, you know, navigated some sticky place in your meditation or in your daily life, how did wisdom do its job there? Like, was it clunky or was it nimble? And, and to correlate like its nimbleness with the stability of present moment awareness and its clunkiness or its inability to really show up with much skill because of the lack of faith, the lack of persistence, and the lack of the stability of present moment awareness. Well, no wonder wisdom flailed about, you know, and we kind of trusted it for a moment, and then doubt arose, like, I don't trust this, you know, and the ego ran in and said, I'll, I'll, I'll do it, you know, and did the best it could, of course, but quite limited, because the ego, by definition, is that part of the mind that operates on habit, based on habit, right? It's, it's the force of habit. That's what the ego is, the existing patterns. And the thing about wisdom is, wisdom's not dependent on habit, because wisdom sees habit. Wisdom has a clear, oh, that's a habit. And wisdom can discern, is that a useful habit or not? And if it's not a useful habit, wisdom knows how to feel the impulse towards that habit without acting out that habit. So it has choice not to be governed by habit because it senses habit, you know, what gets triggered, the impulse, and it senses the skillfulness or unskillfulness of that habit. And if it's skillful, then wisdom might write it into, you know, let it manifest in that moment as a response. And if it's not skillful, you just feel the impulse for that habit to be expressed without expressing it. That's the power of wisdom. And without wisdom, then habits have the run of the place. And that's what we call me in that kind of usual sense of the word. It's not really me, it's just <coughs> dominant habits. And the habit, part of the habit is claiming the dominant habit as I, me, and mine. <laughs> so those two things are what operate. You know, whatever habits is the strongest shows up and the mind claims it as I, me, and mine takes it personally, and it feels personal then, but it's just habit. So that's just an overview of wisdom. Of course, there's a lot to say, and there are times in the six-year Buddhist studies curriculum that we spend a lot more time on the Buddhist teachings on wisdom. But uh, it's time to divide up into small groups. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.